The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Nourish your mind with a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Visit irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply. It's Wednesday, October the 16th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me in studio are Deputy Political Editor Fia Kelly, and on the line are London Editor Dennis Stunt. We'll be joined a little bit later also by the Daily Telegraph's European Editor Peter Foster. But first, on this occasion, I think it's important to say that we're actually recording this at 10.15am on Wednesday, because, Fia, everything's very much in flux on the negotiations. Um, talks have resumed in Brussels. They went on to 1.30am. AM this morning. What do you have for me first on on this? Well, as of last night when I was last speaking to people in government buildings, uh, they were still awaiting legal text from uh, Brussels, uh, whatever was being hammered out between the EU and the UK. That would indicate that political agreement had been reached on the overarching ideas, I suppose, and that they were hammering through the details. The There was, speaking to some people centrally involved last night, they did say that it was looking much better than it was 24 hours ago. So as the day progressed, you may have heard Atishuk say yesterday afternoon, I haven't been given an update. I've been in cabinet, pre-cabinet in the doll. As you got to yesterday evening, there was much more, I suppose, buoyancy around government buildings and Leinster House that something was actually going to be done. And I suppose that fed into an earlier optimism amongst people on the Irish side this week when there were doubts about whether something could be done this week. People in Dublin weren't ruling out the prospect of a deal being presented at the summit and agreed at the summit. And I think that carried on through the evening. Uh, It seems to be, from what we're hearing in Dublin, is that it is this kind of backstop for slow learners, that the customs border will be down the Irish Sea, whether it's a common customs partnership or or something else, or whether the North comes into the customs union, we don't yet know. But I think that is where it's headed. The question that I suppose remains to be answered in all of this is what is the consent mechanism that is going to be there to allow Stormont have a say in whatever is applied to Northern Ireland because it would have to be some sort of, you know, even if it's a theoretical way of the Assembly exiting this arrangement, That how does that affect the government's argument that they wanted an all-weather backstop which would be in place unless and until something else is there. Obviously, that was in a situation when it was envisaged that the final arrangement between the UK and the EU in terms of free trade will be so close that you wouldn't need checks. That has changed given Boris Johnson wants a much different Brexit. But in recent weeks, speaking to people before this kind of accelerated, they, the view was that, you know, probably you couldn't have something that would have a say over something entering whatever it is if there is to be an exit mechanism. How do you shape that? Arlene Foster was talking about cross-community approval that would obviously remove any petition of concern. So what mechanism is there to give Stormont to say and how will that impact upon the Irish government's preposition that any arrangements should be there unless and until or all weather? And Dennis, we might dig into that consent thing in a, in, in a moment. But first, I mean, things did ebb and flow as they have done over the last few days. And when I went to bed last night, I was looking at the front of the, the Fleet Street newspapers and the majority of them seemed pretty optimistic about a deal. And then that seemed to recede a tiny bit this morning, listening to the, the radio programmes. And there was a sense around, uh, there was an interview with David Davis 
um, who, like a couple of other Tories, was very much pointing towards the DUP as being the, the, the key element here, not just because of the, the 10 votes which they hold in the House of Commons, but that uh, their decision would send a signal to, uh, to hard Brexiteers in the Conservative Party. Yeah, the DUP are not yet on board and they need to be because, as you say, it's not just their 10 votes, which do matter because the thing is going to be tight, but it's also that without them, you probably don't get the support of a certain number of the hardline Brexiteers, whereas actually if you do get their support, you probably will get practically all of them. There may be just a handful who hold out, but but, but really they are the key. And for them, there are the, the, the two issues of customs and consent are connected because the stronger the consent mechanism from their point of view, the more they can accept on the customs regime. And so if we go back to what we think we're talking about, which is the idea that, the, that Northern Ireland would leave the European Customs Union with the rest of the United Kingdom, but it would be treated for administrative purposes as if it was still part of it. And the question is kind of how does this work? So one option uh, at one end of the spectrum would be that you would have a straightforward customs border in the Irish Sea and that everything that went into Northern Ireland, you presumed that it was going on into the European Union, so it would pay the European tariff. And then if it turned out that they could show it was staying in Northern Ireland, then they could claim some kind of rebate. Now, that seems... Uh, to be, you know, probably uh, too draconian, not just for the DUP, but for the British government in general. And so they're trying to work out some kind of way where you can spread the risk or share the risk between Britain and the European Union. And this is where, uh, you know, the Europeans are being very, uh, very insistent that they can't take any risks uh, or, or that there's a limit to how much risk they can take in terms of knowing and controlling what's going into the single market. Now, what the DUP would say is that uh, it's it's quite difficult for them to accept any of this stuff because basically they are uh, accepting a border in the Irish Sea of some kind. But that actually it would be easier for them to accept some of it if the consent mechanism was tough. And the original proposal from Boris Johnson was, as Fiat said, that you would initially uh, have a vote in the Assembly six months before this thing was supposed to come into effect. And then you'd have a vote every four years afterwards uh, to see if you if they wanted to keep it going. And uh, the, the idea of having this pre-authorization just doesn't work because it it means there's no certainty for anyone. So I think that one is definitely going to fall away. And then the question was, what would be the mechanism? And since uh, you know the Irish government says you can't allow one community or another to have a veto on this stuff, and you would have that with the petition of concern in the assembly, well, how about just going for a referendum? And uh, the DUP don't like that idea. And so I think what we're looking at is how you would do this in the assembly, whether you do it every four years or every six years or whether you just do it once after four years. Is it a question that you need to get a double majority to remain in the thing or do you need to get a double majority to leave it? And so I think those are the areas where uh, where a lot of it is focusing now. But that's a kind of key issue, isn't it? Because if you flip the veto concept on your head and even if the word veto isn't used, cross-community support is required for an action of any sort. Uh, if cross-community support is required to leave the arrangements which are being currently negotiated, that effectively gives a veto to the nationalist community. Whereas if the cross-community support is required to continue the arrangement, that effectively gives a veto to the unionist community. That is the problem. But the uh, the DUP, I think, do feel themselves to be politically quite exposed on this. And while they... uh, 
you know, they don't want to take the blame for no deal. And they they would feel very isolated if they were the last people standing in the way of a deal for Boris Johnson this week, because it's very much in his interest to get it done this week. Nonetheless, uh, you know, the fact is that they are in a position probably to stop it going ahead this week. And uh, and so I think in the next few hours, and probably by the time many of the people listening to this will have uh, will be will have heard it, uh, you know, I think that's where you will come to this crunch as to whether they can get a bit more with regard to consent. Fiuk, you've just seen some alerts coming in from the negotiations. Yeah, just on on Twitter that I see the. Brussels Bureau Chief of Bloomberg tweeting that the EU sees the negotiations at an impasse. As remaining issues can't be resolved at a technical level, a new mandate from London is needed. UK government is trying to get DUP on board. Um, so, as we were speaking, this thing is ebbing and flowing. Uh, I think this is the positive. kind of moving target we're dealing with. One of the things that strikes me about that, Dennis, is that a couple of analysts over the last over the last couple of days um, looking at this have said, I mean, essentially what's at stake here is that for, for, for a long time, the United Kingdom has been trying not to have overly technical or, as they would see, overly restrictive and overly specific legislation agreed in advance of this. But the EU has always argued that that is what's required and and this is what Fiuk just read out there is kind of the illustration of that really that that the the, the EU is a, is a is a union of legally constituted states and they want to nail all this stuff down and the British want to nail it down as little as possible I suppose yeah and I think the other problem is it's to do with time what the Europeans basically have been saying to the British is uh, look if you want to think up this entirely new idea we're open to talking about that but we can't do it in the next. 48 hours. So we, uh, you know, if you want to have something you can do quick so that you can get this through Parliament on Saturday, then you really are going to have to stick, uh, you know, more or less to what we've prepared earlier. And so you've got, so you build, you start with the Northern Ireland backstop and you build out from there and you can, uh, and, and you can add things and put in sort of safeguards and do all kinds of things to it. But the idea that you actually write a, a completely new thing altogether, that would take more time. So I think that's the other restriction. And then, of course, what we do get into with all these questions of timing is what does Boris Johnson do if uh, you if he can't get a deal in time for the summit on Thursday? And so he can't get it through on the 19th. Does he simply say what the Europeans would say, which is, look, we've made quite a lot of progress, but we need more time. And so we just uh, carry on negotiating next week. Or does he completely... Uh, pivot and say, well, actually, we've made all our, our best effort and, and there's no point in carrying on now. It's quite clear I need a majority in Parliament to get this through and I'm just going to go and, uh, you know, uh, and not talk to you until such time as we've had an election. Just Fair. on that point, Dennis, um, Leo Rackers speaking uh, right now, around now, at an agri-food event in the Viva Stadium and he said he has spoken to Boris Johnson this morning it remains hopeful a Brexit deal can be reached today, but says that there's still time to do a deal before October 31st if agreement isn't reached today. So perhaps he's hedging his bets there. And if there isn't agreement at this summit, that there may be another summit before the 31st. But it seems to be that something seems to have happened in the last few hours that's created this And, and in relation to that, um, Dennis, um, um, Stephen Barclay, the Brexit secretary in the United Kingdom, was speaking before a committee at Westminster this morning. And when asked as as all members of his government are being asked continually at the moment, what will you do in relation to the Ben Act, which, as we know, kicks in immediately after the summit and requires the, the, the British government to request an extension until January the 31st. His wording there, it seemed to me, was a little bit more 
uh, clearly open to the possibility that uh, that that Boris Johnson would would follow the Ban Act essentially than we've seen so far, which might be a sign that an extension is is hoving into view more. Well, I think they have to. Uh, I mean, they're going to have to follow the Ban Act. There's no. Uh, I think even they know they are going to have to. You know, their cunning plan doesn't exist. You know, so uh, you know, uh, so there's nothing they can do about it. It's the law. They have to do it. But I think that obviously they'd prefer to avoid it. And this is where uh, the importance of getting it done this week comes in, because the deadline for writing that letter and requesting the extension is Saturday night. So if he hasn't got a deal and got it through Parliament by Saturday night, then he's got to request the extension. If he has got the deal through, then you don't have to get into any of that stuff. Now, obviously, if you, you know, if he fails to get the deal this week, and he, uh, you know, he then is obliged after a, probably a few days in court to go and write the letter, sort of maybe towards the end of next week, then, uh, you know, what you could find is that that the whole business of the, the the extension and the length of the extension kind of becomes part of the negotiation. So let's imagine that by the end of next week that they're actually moving in on uh, on a deal and that he says to them, OK, I now have to ask you for this extension and Parliament demands that I say I want, uh, I want it until the end of January. But actually, you know, a few weeks would do me just fine. Thank you. I think they could then say, well, OK, well, uh, we'll uh, offer you this extension just for three weeks or whatever to get yourself, you get all your parliamentary stuff done. But we're going to make clear to you and to your MPs, that's it. We're not offering any more. So the MPs then are faced with a starker choice that actually, uh, you know, they, either they back Johnson's deal or they're going to get a no deal Brexit. And that's uh, and that would help Johnson, obviously, in terms of concentrating minds in London. But still, his position is slightly weakened if he goes beyond Saturday, because in terms of the Brexit party on his right, they can say, look, he uh, he didn't keep his promise. He did ask for the extension, just like Theresa May. OK, it was a short one, but still he did. You know, so it's it's you know, I think you know, clearly his preference would be to try to get and, this done. This and week. Dennis, what's your read on when we say get a deal? Um, we know that Theresa May got a deal and then it was turned down on numerous occasions by um, the current Houses, Houses of Parliament, the, the, the Commons, which is still there. Um, yeah. And uh, even with the DUP and, let's say, most of the ERG, bar a couple of out-and-out extremists, mm. it's still incredibly tight. And there's, it requires the passage of, you know, quite a lot of legislation. There's many a slip, twixt, cup and lip there, isn't there? Yeah, there is. I mean, I think you, uh, if you, you know, if you got the people you mentioned, you'd also get, uh, you know, all but a, a handful of extremists among the twenty-one uh, expelled conservative rebels as mm. well. And then, uh, you know, you've got anything from kind of nine to nineteen potential Labour crossovers. I mean, it's hard to know exactly how that would go. It's the the kind of Brexit he's looking for makes it harder for them to vote for it because he's looking for uh, a low regulation out of the customs union, all of that. So it's, you know, if you're uh, representing some manufacturing district and saying you're voting for a deal because it'll protect your supply chains, but actually it won't because you're going to be out of the customs union. Then I think, um, you know, it's, it's more difficult. So, so it's certainly going to be touch and go as to whether he can get it or not. But I do think that actually he can keep his rebellion on his own back, Brexit here, backbench is very small. Uh, just by using the threat of deselection, just as he, you know, deselected those twenty-one on the other side of the party, they could also be deselected. Well, for example, it occurs to me that many of those Labour MPs who might possibly vote for the, um, the withdrawal agreement might 
not vote for the political declaration because the declaration is more about a Canada minus type future for the United Kingdom, which is very hard for a Labour MP to support. Well, it's actually bundled up, so they can't really, uh, you know, I mean, they can try to put forward amendments. I mean, I think maybe the more worrying amendment for him would be an amendment demanding a confirmatory referendum. And there's a chance that that would pass. And then if the amendment passes, what does he do? Does he then... uh, continue to to vote for his own withdrawal agreement and uh, you know even though there, there would be this uh, referendum demand attached to it or does he find some way around that there are sort of legislative ways you could possibly get around it you know so so that I think that creates a bigger a bigger headache for him just a bit more detail on what the Taoiseach actually has said in the last while he said he spoke to Boris Johnson this morning as well as the commission I think he's hopeful a deal can be done he said, again, repeated the phrase that there's a pathway to a possible deal, but significant issues remaining. He instant consent and taxation. He said, it's hopeful a deal can be done today. Everybody's working towards this week um, and the House of Commons vote on Saturday, but a second summit may be needed. So, and I would add to that in this uniquely live podcast that we're, we're doing here at the moment, a quote I just see from Sammy Wilson of the DUP, quote, if the union is weakened, no amount of money will get us to accept the deal. And indeed, there has been a lot of talk, Dennis, over the last 24 hours about more wadges of cash being negotiated to, uh, to sweeten the whole thing from the DUP's perspective. Yeah, I, I think that's the you know I, I think that we're talking maybe about uh, you know two different kinds of cash as it were. There's there's always been talk of having some kind of EU money uh, you know for the border region continuing, and also then for more uh, money from the UK uh, government to uh, develop some of these uh, parts of Northern Ireland, and and generally speaking in negotiations, uh, the DUP I think probably quite wisely at their moment of maximum maximum leverage, they do tend to get a bit more money out of the government if they can. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a if there's a bit more there. But I think Samuel Wilson is right that actually you're talking about things here which really are beyond money, you know, and money helps lots of things. But actually, I think the issues that we're talking about are just a bit more important than that. Dennis, finally, can I, can I ask you... Um Theresa May must be watching the television and listening to the radio over the last 24 hours and looking at the shape, the contours of this deal that emerges and say, what the hell is going on here? This is basically the same thing that I negotiated and was turned down um, two years ago by the DUP in particular. Yeah, she uh, actually she comes into the House of Commons and she sits uh, beside Ken Clark usually, uh, just behind, you know, a few uh, rows behind the Prime Minister. And she's generally fairly expressionless, but when... Um, Lee Rowley was proposing the Queen's speech. He's a backbencher who's voted against her deal three times. Uh, When he uh, spoke about how eager he was to get Brexit done, she made some remark to Alan Duncan on the other side of her, which caused him to explode in laughter. So I don't know what exactly it was that she said. So I think she certainly, uh, she appears to be very conscious of all of the ironies that she's watching unfold in front of her. Yeah, the the dynamic in in Dublin is, is interesting as well. You know, which the focus obviously is Brussels and London. You know, Leinster House has become something of a hothouse in the last 24 hours, and I'm sure that can continue during the week. It's almost it's almost like December 2017 in repeat when the initial protocol was agreed and the whole place went into meltdown about a possible election. Except there's some there seems to be more substance to it now that um, there is a kind of large degree of stirring in the Finnegale undergrowth that if a deal is done and sat- goes through the Commons on Saturday then we could be looking at a general election here in relatively short order, despite the Taoiseach repeatedly insisting that his preference is for May 2020. But uh, I thought it was interesting last night on one of the on the Tonight Show that Damien English, the junior minister for 
housing was seeming to prepare the defence of the government if they choose to cut and run before that by saying, you know, well, we did offer Micheál Martin the chance to fix the date. It's made, he, we offered May 2020, he didn't agree to it. And I think they have a particularly, they have a good, they have a good case if that's what they choose to do because they did offer to fix the date. Micheál Martin is the one who chose to tie the government to Brexit. And if Brexit is, the withdrawal of Brexit is done and the budget is passed, confidence supply ceases to be so we're going to, could be going to the polls here. In a OK, you too. heard it here. We might be having another podcast in half an hour the way these things are going at the moment. Listen, thanks so much, Dennis, for joining us. Thank you. It's time to focus on what matters. Nourish your mind with Headspace and the Irish Times. Headspace connects you to yourself. The Irish Times connects you to the truth. Headspace gives you a healthy perspective. The Irish Times gives you a wider perspective. Take a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Pause, breathe, focus. Subscribe at irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply. And we're joined now by Peter Foster, who's the European editor of the Daily Telegraph. Peter, you must be very busy there this morning. <laughs> another crazy day, although, you know what, another another hiatus. Uh, very busy, but everyone really on tenterhooks. There's been so much speculation about this deal. But if, you know, we really are now, I think, at the point where we need to see what it says. And... So far, no white smoke from the Berlimont. Uh, uh, David Frost, the British negotiator, has come and gone. Uh, but we wait to see the text. And I think, you know, as always with Brexit, the devil will be in the detail. Um, I was talking just a minute ago to our London editor, Dennis Staunton, and uh, we were discussing this, this question, this tension which always exists, and you've written about it in the past, between, on the one hand, the UK side, which really wants, you know, broad statements of principle and not to be tied down uh, by technical commitments, and on the other hand, uh, the European Union, which wants exactly the opposite, wants everything to be tied down as much as possible. Is that where we're kind of at at the moment in terms of the negotiations? Yeah, I mean, I think, the you know, we're, what we're trying to do here is create not a backstop, so not an unless and until arrangement like we had before, but a front stop. We're trying to build a new reality for Northern Ireland. We know that Northern Ireland will stay inside the regulatory envelope of the EU, so market regulations for agriculture and industrial goods. The question was always customs. Now, if, as we assume, we're going to get a customs border in the Irish Sea of some description with a rebate scheme so that Northern Irish residents can... Uh, you know, take advantage of potentially lower UK tariffs, that border needs to work, right? The EU needs to know that the thing that they're going to be downstream of works. I mean, think of it like a dam. They need to know that the dam is structurally uh, 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 secure uh, before they start building houses beneath it, as it were. And so I think that's why you're seeing Johnson under such pressure, you know, his own time frame, his own deadline, and why I think this deal, when it comes out, will be, you know, quite off the shelf. There'll be a lot of camouflage, a lot of lipstick, as it were. But in the end of the day, this border needs to work and the EU needs to know that it can work and will work. And it won't be based on some as yet unbuilt British system that nobody um, has seen. And how much of this uh, is impacted by the fact that the situation has changed since, considerably since Theresa May negotiated a, on the face of it, very similar deal uh, two years or so ago because of the commitment now by the Johnson government to a, you know, a Canada minus or something like that kind of trade deal, a different kind of, you know, much less alignment with the EU in the, in the future. That border down the Irish Sea becomes, you know, has to become harder in a way, doesn't it? It certainly has to become thicker. You know, I, I, I like the phrases thick and thin rather than hard or soft. You know, I think, 
yes, it has to do more. You know, if 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 Great Britain is going buccaneering and is having hypothetically chlorinated chicken and big tariff differentials with the with the EU, and you know, let's see about that. Um, you know, the British record in rolling over trade deals hasn't been exactly that fantastic. And I did an interview with Philip Hammond recently, in which he was extremely scathing about the prospect for these deals. But theoretically, you're right. The, the, the sea border that we're talking about, the filter, as it were, however that filter is going to work, is going to need to be pretty comprehensive. Because what we're doing here is actually rebuilding what Europe wanted back in February 2018, the Northern Irish only backstop. Don't call it a backstop. Don't call it Northern Irish only. But effectively, Northern Ireland's going to be in a special arrangement compared to Great Britain. And that is pretty much what the EU wanted, right? No hard border. And then a fairly simple relationship between Great Britain and the EU. They did offer us to be in the customs union in order to make the border work in an all UK context, as Theresa May asked for it. But I'm not sure, actually, that's where the EU necessarily wants to go. I can see the Irish government might want to go there. But, you know, the EU, bits of the EU that I speak to are quite reluctant to see UK in a customs union in a Turkey-based arrangement wanting better than Turkey conditions. They can see that that would be actually quite complex and difficult to manage politically. And so this is kind of, you know, a finessed version of what they proposed rather clumsily back in February 2018. It strikes me, Fiuk, listening to Peter there, that from the Irish perspective, looking a couple of moves ahead on the chessboard, should a deal of this sort happen either before October 31st or in the next couple of months? Well, then the next stage from the Irish government, as Peter is suggesting there, is that the Irish government's interest was always in having the softest or thinnest, or however you want to characterise it, Brexit as possible. We go into these negotiations about the future relationship. You have a much harder line from the, from the, from the new Tory government on having uh, much less alignment with the European Union. But experience now of the last, particularly over the last couple of weeks, is that this current British government is very fond of blowharding and rhetoric and Brexit, uh, all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to the crunch, it, it may not follow it through on it. No, I, th- I think Peter's right. Like the, the reversion to the original Northern Ireland backstop, like Dublin, in a way, couldn't really believe its luck back in December 2017 when the DUP insisted on that extra paragraph being stitched into the initial protocol, which basically said, you know, that the Northern Ireland can you have un- unfettered access to the UK market. That more or less, Maria, led the way to the Theresa May deal, which was uh, the customs union, Northern Ireland remaining in line with the single market. So I think that was probably the high point for Dublin, that kind of dreamland scenario where the backstop would lasso the UK into a much closer relationship than initially had been wanted that has fallen away, so reality has has bitten. You're back to what the initial proposal was. But I think, yeah, the interesting thing about recent weeks has been that, yeah, this bluster has fallen away, that the idea, you know, we're going to leave with no deal, that we have this cunning plan, that has all fallen away. But you just wonder, will that follow through? I don't think there's anything Dublin can, can do about that. Like, its stated intention was always to have the Northern Ireland only backstop. Its stated intention has always been to have no border infrastructure on the island of Ireland. It never explicitly said that it wanted the closest possible trading relationship or it didn't put any terms on it by saying we want the UK in a customs union, we want the UK in a single market. That was their wish, but they couldn't say it. So I think, you know, if you're to follow through in the rhetoric of what Boris Johnson says that, you know, Every speech he's given has been about exploiting the benefits of Brexit, you know, breaking free of regulations, you know, moving into new areas. And even if you have a Labour government that is unencumbered by EU rules, it will act quite differently. So I'm not quite sure that 
the government is thinking that that far down the line, to be honest. I think I their initial it can't, it can't, really. it can't. Its initial focus is getting this deal. And then if there is a deal, the focus, as I said, turns domestically to what they do with the political capital they have from that deal. Do they call an election or not? And I think that is literally the stage at which this government is thinking right now. But I wonder, Peter, I mean, some people do think further ahead. And are there people in Brussels, and we know we've heard, you know, soundings over the last week or two that there's concern in Germany about the prospect of a of a Singapore-style Britain off the coast of Europe competing with it at lower regulatory standards, all that kind of stuff. We get into the tough nitty-gritty in that if we get past this, this particular moment. And uh, despite what Felix says, Irish interests and European interests are aligned in making sure that Britain doesn't get away with something uh, that people think it shouldn't get away with. I think that's right. And, and I, I, I agree with Vic that, that, you know, the history of these negotiations, Cameron, May and Johnson, they always start with big fat talk and gravity over time takes over. It's taken over pretty quickly in the case of Boris Johnson. Uh, and so uh, I don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, the Irish government will just have to deal with the sovereign choices of the British government. I think it accepts that. As you say, ideally, it would have lassoed the UK into a much closer relationship. That's not what Boris Johnson wants. Who knows whether it'll actually be Boris Johnson or his government ultimately negotiating a future relationship. But whatever the UK does, Ireland is just going to have to roll with it. It doesn't have any choice. It doesn't have a say in UK trade policy. Um, Now, what happens when the British negotiators get in the room with Sabine Weymond and the trade-offs involved in this very hard, very flat Canada miners type deal that Johnson is ex- uh, sketching out are made clear. You know, the EU has an immense ability to defend itself against the kind of Singapore on Thames model. Uh, and, you know, it will, you know, so Angela Merkel's remarks about having a competitor on our doorstep, it's pretty clear it will do that. Um, you know, then the other you know, big question, of course, is whether there's any real appetite when it comes to on the UK side for a deregulatory uh, environment. You know, people are quite attached to their social environmental uh, regulations. Look at environment as a political football at the moment. It's all about more, uh, um, you know, gold plating in environmental regulations, not, not a kind of race to the bottom. So I just wonder whether, you know, once this thing has gone over the line, actually gravity takes over again, and we probably don't end up quite as buccaneering and hard uh, uh, relationship with the EU as um, as you know currently being being touted. Yeah, I think I, that is the interesting thing, and I you know what you say about the environmental aspect. You know, it's interesting. I think when you look at that the environmental debate now, and you look at Boris Johnson's government, it's actually been putting quite an emphasis on environmental protections and environmental standards. And like you know, that is one area you think they're not going to diverge much from the EU. But like I agree with Peter. Like, is it? credible that the UK would become Singapore on Thames. Like, you know, there's a very, very small proportion, it seems to me, I don't have an intimate knowledge of the workings of Westminster, a very small portion of the Tory party want that. That is what they want from Brexit. Like, could that anyway command a majority in the House of Commons or could they bring that towards a conclusion? And if you have Boris Johnson, who's pitching himself as a one nation conservative, he's not the man possibly to, and, to, to, to perhaps, lead that kind of rampaging capitalism if he's going to win a majority on the back of northern votes. And perhaps if I could add to that, Peter, if we do get into a situation where there's a UK general election after a deal has been agreed, the the main project, Cummings project at the moment of killing the Brexit party is replaced by a new project of killing a Lib Dem resurgence, which would mean a move in the direction that Fiek is talking about. I think that's right. Uh, you know, this is all about getting something over the line, getting it done. You know, we still need to, given how hard the Brexit kind of pitches at the moment, 
we still need to see honestly whether there are the numbers in parliament um to vote for it you know one thing about getting the erg on board with this promise of a hard buccaneering brexit is you then raise serious questions about whether or not there are enough labor mps prepared to vote for a deal that gives boris johnson essentially uh, a really good shot at winning a majority and you know that would give him the clout probably to force through a much harder brexit uh, now the government seems to be reasonably confident it does have the numbers if it can get the dup on board which is what it's trying to do um uh, at the moment but as you say once the election kicks in and brexit is done then we start to have a much broader conversation well we're right in the midst of it there at the moment but uh thanks very much for joining us peter because i'm sure you have plenty to be covering my pleasure and that is it for today's podcast thanks to fiek to dennis and to peter for joining us thanks also to our producer jennifer ryan and engineer jj vernon remember you can subscribe to us on apple podcasts on spotify and acast or whatever the hell your preferred podcast provider might be and you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcast you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on twitter until the next time thanks for listening 